Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. When you have a detective with no one to trust who meets a killer with nothing to lose, what's the outcome? The answer is in the eagerly awaited follow-up to Daniel Cole's 2017 debut thriller Ragdoll and the latest book in the Ragdoll series, Hangman. Hangman is a high-concept thriller, think along the lines of Seven or The Bone Collector, that fans of true crime can enjoy just as much as crime fiction diehards, and it pits Cole's established lead character, Detective Chief Inspector Emily Baxter, coming up against a determined bloody killer who commits carnage on either side of the Atlantic Ocean, and always seems to be a step ahead. Daniel was happy to be in touch with the show, and he told me that with Hangman, he decided to take an unconventional route with DCI Baxter, and with it as aimed to write an even better story than the first, keeping the reader on the back foot from the off. Although it's book two in the Ragdoll series, Hangman works as much as a standalone thriller as it does as part of a series, and Ragdoll has already made fans in the genre, such as authors MJ Arledge and Rachel Abbott. It's out now in paperback from Trapeze Publishers, available in all good high street and online bookstores, and you can head over to the link in this week's show notes to get your copy. Your life is hanging by a thread, but who's pulling the strings? The latest in the Ragdoll series, Hangman, out now. Before we begin the episode, a few words about the kind sponsors of the show this week, Beer 52. Like me, do you enjoy a craft beer? Well, how would you enjoy a free case of craft beer with Christmas coming up? As a listener to the show, I'm pleased to say that to say thanks for doing so, my friends at Beer52 have teamed up with a true crime enthusiast to make this possible. You can just head over to beer52.com forward slash true crime, that's beer52.com forward slash true crime, to claim yourself a free case of special craft beers. Beer 52 searched over the world's greatest breweries for incredible, exclusive, small-batch craft beers that they bring back to their members, and that's made them the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. Each month focuses on a different country or theme, and listeners to the show who sign up now will be able to discover some great beers as part of the West Country Road Trip Month. This month you're getting a mix of great beers from some fledgling brewers from the Bristol area, such as Firebrand with a refreshing New England IPA, Lost and Grounded with a fabulous Keller Pilsner, and the Wild Beer Company with their intriguing Sleeping Limes, but to name just a few, these aren't your standard supermarket fodder beers. Beer 52 were kind enough to send me a case that I thoroughly enjoyed trying, believe me, and those Bristol brewers certainly know this stuff, I can tell you. Fancy a case then? Well, as a listener to the show, you get the opportunity to try your first case for free. All you have to pay is £5.95 postage costs. For that, you get eight hand-picked Ace Craft beers, but that's not all you get. Included in the box is a 100-page magazine called Ferment, which is filled with all sorts of features and information about your beers, how they are made, where they're sourced from. You even get a snack to enjoy with your beers as well, because that always goes hand-in-hand, doesn't it? So that's eight fabulous beers, a 100-page magazine and a snack 
for just £5.95 postage. What's to think about? It's a no-brainer, really. If you like lighter beers, then choose the light case. If you're a fan of a darker drop, get yourself the mixed case. You can tailor the box to suit your preferences, and you can rate and review all of the beers on the Beer52 website. And there's no minimum commitment with it. You can just take the free case and see what you think, and if it's not really your thing, then no worries, you can pause or cancel any time. It's simple. Don't miss the chance to get yourself some unique, interesting beers in for Crimbo. Just go to beer52.com forward slash true crime. That's beer52.com forward slash true crime to claim your free case today. Hello all and a warm welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that seeks out the unfamiliar and obscure cases that the UK and Ireland have on their books. I'm Paul, I'm the creator and host of the show and I thank you guys as ever for joining me for the episode. I hope that this one finds that you're all good and well, unlike myself who's just getting over the most horrendous cold I've probably ever had in my life, but I am coming out the other side of it now and on the way back so it's all good. Hello to the new enthusiasts who followed and supported the show this week and a ruffle of the collective hairs of you established lot who've been joining me here for a while now. I know I say it all the time but it's ace of you and it really does mean the world to me. Thanks especially this week to the latest Patreon supporters of the show namely Paul, Marcia, Sarah Person, Karen Risk, Laura Blowing, Sidas, Denise Berg, Steve Holt and Metty Kongstead who's edited her pledge. Fantastic of you all guys and very much appreciated and I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show with, as I release this episode, bonus episode number 11 will be dropping tomorrow on the 1st of December. And it's nearly crimbo eh? Are you all excited for it or do you think it's a load of old expensive tosh where you eat, drink and spend far too much and you can't really wait for it to be over? I fall a bit in the middle of both of those really. I've got to work over Christmas this year but I've done it many times before so it's nothing new to me really and it's just one of them things that you have to do. I don't have a show promo to play this week as to be honest I've been so horrendously busy with stuff I haven't had the time to devote myself to seeking out a new show to recommend. I caught up with the regular ones that I listen to of course each week and I hope to find one for the next episode that I can devote the time to listen properly to an episode of because I always have to have a bit of a listen else it sounds hollow really and that's not very fair on the host and it's not very fair on everyone listening so I don't like doing that. So this week we're right down to the episode. For this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast I'm focusing on a bit of a mixed bag of cases from Gloucestershire, a county in the west of the UK. It's an area that if you're a true crime buff, and of course that you don't live under a rock, you'll know is the area where infamous UK serial killers Fred and Rose West hail from. 
We also visited the town of Gloucester in the first series of the show when we looked back at the case of Glyn Dix in the Little Arguments episode. And for this week's episode, I've decided to head back to the county for three tales. All three are horrific crimes that won't be familiar to the listener. And I chose the episode title because the sad unsolved cases that are featured this week, I want to stay in people's minds because they deserve to be remembered. If using a moniker makes the cases memorable, then so be it. It's not me in any way trying to be disrespectful to the memory or family of any of those people involved. The episode this week does contain graphic descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion when you're listening. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts as this week we look at Gloucestershire Unsolved and the cases of Little Granny and the Clog Lady. The town of Cheltenham in the English county of Gloucestershire is famed for being a spa town, the host of several cultural festivals and steeplechase horse racing. It's on the edge of the Cotswolds, which is a place where we visited last series for the case of sex-crazed killer farmer Graham Backhouse. And notable and famous people from the area include the creator of the Rocky Horror Picture Show himself, rebellious Rick Richard O'Brien, British ski-jumping hero Eddie the Eagle Edwards is from there, with his fantastic unique chin. And founder member of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, comes from the area, who also gives his name to fabulous band The Brian Jonestown Massacre. It's a fantastic band name, or what that is, isn't it? They're a really good band as well. I, One of my favourites, yeah, definitely. Cheltenham was also the home for many years to a lady named Constance Harris a 73-year-old widow who lived alone in an attractive mid-terraced house in Cheltenham's Roman Road area. By the 27th of February 1985, Keith and Vanessa Harris were worried. They'd not heard from Keith's mother Constance for a few days, something which was well out of character for her. Constance had been widowed for many years, but was a very active person, a churchgoer and community member involved with many clubs and voluntary activities who was loved by her family and friends alike. She doted on her two grandchildren, Siobhan and Damien, and Constance, who was nicknamed Little Granny by her grandchildren because she was just over five feet tall, would be in touch with the family most days, if not every day, either by visiting them at home or telephoning as they lived nearby. So when they hadn't had a visit or a telephone call from Constance by the 28th of February 1985, Keith and Vanessa decided to go around to her house to make sure that she was alright. They were concerned that she'd perhaps fallen in the house and needed assistance, or had been taken ill. What they found when they arrived at the house at 9.15am that morning was a scene of unspeakable horror. More than 33 years later, it still shakes the Harris family to the core and it's a sight that nobody should ever have to see. Using the key that they had for the property to open the front door, Keith and Vanessa entered the house and walked into the hallway. After calling out to his mother to no response, Keith could hear the television set on in the front room, and thinking that his mother was in there and may not have heard them come in, pushed open the front room door. Doing so, he came across a sight that he readily omits, he will take to his grave with him. The television was on quite loudly, and Constance was slumped in her living room armchair. At a cursory glance, she may have appeared to be asleep, but looking for more than a second, it was clear that this was not the case at all. 
blood and brain matter spattered the walls and ceiling surrounding the chair, which was also very heavily bloodstained, and Keith could see that his mother had massive head injuries, and was very clearly dead. Still wearing her heavily bloodstained clothing, she'd been brutally battered to death. A shaken and understandably distressed Vanessa and Keith called police immediately, and a murder inquiry was launched, led by Detective Chief Superintendent Don Holland. In what was to be the biggest manhunt Cheltenham had ever known, more than 70 police officers were drafted in to hunt for the killer, with police appalled at the savage crime. Whilst the routine actions that are par the course of any murder inquiry got underway, the designation of duties, house-to-house inquiries, roadblocks and forensic examination of the scene, Constance's body was taken to the local mortuary and a post-mortem was performed, bringing with it chilling results. It was determined that Constance had been brutally battered to death by a killer who had attacked her whilst facing her, and had struck her in the head no less than five times with a heavy weapon, causing catastrophic head injuries. Her head had literally been smashed to pieces. The most likely weapon that had been used to kill her, the coroner decided, was an axe. That's the stuff of nightmares, isn't it, really? eh? Take that in for a second. An old lady battered to death with an axe like that. I have no words for someone who can do something of that magnitude. I really don't. Shaken police officers were sickened at the level of violence, and it led them to believe that they were looking for a maniac. Detective Superintendent Holland said to the Cheltenham Evening Standard newspaper, This was a premeditated vicious attack on a virtually defenceless old lady. It was a brutal callous attack with a degree of violence which could not have left any doubt that death was going to be the result. A maniac indeed, I mean, what else can you call the kind of person who can do that to a tiny 73-year-old lady? Piecing together Constance's final movements, it was established that she'd attended one of the social groups that she belonged to, a friendly society meeting at St Mark's Community Centre in Cheltenham on the afternoon of February the 27th. When the meeting had finished at about 6pm, she'd walked from the centre in Cheltenham's Brooklyn Road as far as Libertus Road with a friend of hers, where they arrived at about 6.20pm before going their separate ways. The friend remembered that Constance had been as bright as ever and in fine spirits and had told her that she would see her soon before heading off in the direction of her home on Roman Road. Now Constance's movements after leaving her friend remain a mystery. Libertus Road is in very close proximity to where she lived, so if she'd headed straight home, she would have travelled from here, headed left down Rowanfield Road, before turning right into Roman Road, and would certainly have arrived home no later than 6.30pm. No witnesses ever came forward to say that they'd seen Constance after her friend left her, however, so it cannot be ascertained if she was accompanied by anyone on the short distance home, or followed home by someone. Three years after the crime, when it was reappealed, Detective Superintendent Holland said, We've never traced anyone who saw Mrs. Harris making her way on home from there. She may have perhaps had a lift or been befriended by someone. It was estimated then that Constance had been brutally killed sometime between 6.30pm on the evening of February the 27th and 9am the following morning when her son and daughter-in-law made the horrific discovery of her body at home. But nobody had heard any screams or sounds of a struggle in that time frame, 
so pinning the exact time of death down is difficult. Police believed at the time that Constance may have unwittingly let a killer into the house, she was very security conscious and made a point of locking all doors and ensuring that all windows, both downstairs and upstairs, were shut. February is generally a cold month, so no windows are likely to have been left open or ajar by Constance, but no clear sign of any forced entry to the house was found either, so a definite break-in could never be established. Did Constance let a killer in under some ruse or pretense, or had he perhaps accompanied her home, offering to carry shopping, for example? The 1985 manhunt for a killer was massive. Constance's family, friends and neighbours were all looked at as persons of interest and subsequently ruled out as suspects. The background on her life was scrutinised for anyone who possibly may have wished to harm, but nobody was identified as a suspect. It seemed that she was loved or liked by all who knew her. Police roadblocks were set up at either end of Roman Road and a large electronic display screen flashing murder was placed at nearby Cheltenham Spa train station, where hundreds of commuters were interviewed as potential witnesses. It was thought that the killer may have fled the area on a train, a reasonable assumption due to the close proximity of the station to Constance's house for a quick getaway. It is just yards from the scene. Yet inquiries with commuters and rail staff revealed nothing. No one suspicious had been sighted there that evening. A mass search of the area was undertaken for any bloodstained clothing that a killer may have disposed of, or a murder weapon, with fingertip searches undertaken of local parks and fields, ponds and rivers were searched, officers searched rubbish bins, drains, manholes throughout the Cheltenham area, but to this day, the murder weapon has never been found. The motive for a murder has never been clearly established. At the time, the police consensus was that Constance's murder was the result of a burglary gone wrong, but Constance's family and friends said she was unlikely to have had any significant amount of money in the house. It's also not reported as to any signs of the house being ransacked. Constance was also an extremely small old lady, and would have been easy to restrain. She couldn't have put up much resistance against an intruder and certainly nothing to warrant such a level of extreme violence being used against her. And anyway, not many burglars brutally murder the occupants of the house that they've broken into either, do they? An assortment of Constance's possessions were taken from the scene, however, including some watches, stick pins, items of dress jewellery and a pension book. But it was a small haul, this, really, and the amount of extreme violence that was directed at a defenceless old lady seems totally out of place for such a tiny hole. It's a factor that police have never been able to explain or understand. 4,500 interviews were conducted in house-to-house -house inquiries, and 2,800 written statements were taken from people living in neighbouring streets and the local area. But this mass inquiry didn't lead to police uncovering a single vital clue that would lead them to the killer. No one was seen fleeing from the scene, either into Rowanfield Road or onto the B6433 Road which borders Cheltenham Spa train station. No one suspicious had been seen in the Midland Hotel pub which is at the top of Roman Road on the day of the murder and no witnesses came forward to say that they'd seen anybody suspicious hanging around or had heard anything suspicious. Despite a check of persons from the area with a history of violence who were all consequently ruled out, police had no real suspects or even any suspect description. It was a difficult investigation from the start. 
But they did, however, have one potential piece of forensic evidence for elimination purposes if a suspect was identified. A solitary fingerprint, one that couldn't be eliminated from regular visitors to the house, was found at the murder scene, although it's not stated exactly where in the house that the print was discovered. Armed with this, during the inquiry, police took 1,200 sets of fingerprints from every male who lived within a square mile of Constance's home. These were then sent to the Regional Fingerprint Bureau in Bristol, where they were painstakingly checked by hand against the print that had been found at the murder scene. A result was never matched. All potential lines of investigation were followed up and exhausted, and Constance's horrific murder soon became yet another cold case, and despite several reappeals about the crime over the years, no one has yet been brought to justice for Constance's murder. It's of course not a forgotten case in the Cheltenham area, I mean, how can you really forget something so awful happening? And it's one that long-standing residents of the town would love to see solved although I don't think it's an unsolved case that's entered the public conscious like others have. In an interview with a local newspaper on the anniversary of the crime some years after it, Constance's daughter-in-law Vanessa said, You never get over something like that. Of course you have to try to move on and live your life, but the grief is always there. It makes us angry when we hear that other cold cases are solved, but not this one. We still harbour some hope that one day the killer will be brought to account. It's had such a huge impact on our lives and on the family. Now this is sad and awful crime to have happened and regular listeners to the show will know that I hold an especial deep loathing for people who target the elderly. And imagine finding your mum like that. That must be just, I don't even want to try and imagine it. Constance's family deserved more than anything to see little granny's killer brought to justice and I'm completely up there with them too, wanting to see this happen. So what then can be defined about the killer's identity and personality? Again, whenever we cover unsolved cases on the show, I don't suggest the following is definitive, and in no way is it suggested to be fact. It's purely hypothetical, based on the evidence that's available for research, and there's not too much of that really, is there? To begin with, it's likely but not definite that the killers are male. Violent crimes are predominantly committed by males, and this certainly qualifies as a violent crime, doesn't it? The concept of a random female committing such a violent murder is highly unlikely. Burglary is also predominantly committed by males as well, if that's what this was to begin. A varied assortment of Constance's possessions had been taken, and none of these, such as items of jewellery or watches, has ever reappeared. It is possible that these items were sold elsewhere for a quick profit, given away to someone, or even taken by the killer purely as some form of macabre trophy. But then why take so many of them? The amount of items taken almost suggests someone grabbing whatever trinkets were to hand is almost an afterthought. I'm also of the opinion that the killer is someone either from or extremely familiar with the local area. When viewed, Roman Road is filled with terraced houses and it offers little access or regress apart from at either end. Looking at the houses too, each one is near enough indiscriminate, at least in the present day, so it's impossible to look at one and know that the occupants are elderly. This can be determined sometimes on a property by telltale signs such as the presence of ramps or rails fixed to the outside walls. However, there's nothing to suggest that there was any sign of things such as these at Constance's house at the time of her death. 
The house was also on a busy road within a network of busy pedestrianised roads, therefore it's a bizarre choice of property to choose just at random. Offenders predominantly commit crimes in areas that they feel comfortable with, that they know how to access and escape from, to be able to blend into. For these reasons I believe the likelihood of the killer knowing the area well, or living within the area, is quite high. The absence of any clear sign of forced entry to the house raises the possibility that Constance had been spotted going home and had been followed home by her killer. Perhaps she was even known to him through one of the day-to-day busy and varied activities that she was involved with. If she had been followed, this is someone who set out with a premeditated mindset of committing a crime and not a spur-of-the-moment chancer who suddenly decided to rob an old lady because the opportunity presented itself. It's also highly unlikely that this is the only crime ever committed by the offender. Crimes of this magnitude are built up to, so it's likely that the killer will have offended before Constance's murder. The violence used almost guarantees this. I mean, who does that for a first offence? Nobody does, do they? It would certainly suggest an offender who has experienced a burglary or perhaps a confidence trickster who is experienced in talking his way into houses. This doesn't equate necessarily to the offender having killed before though, and that may explain the extreme violence used, because the killer didn't know exactly what was enough, when to stop, pretty much. There was no evidence of any sexual assault against Constance reported, but the level of violence used against her is extremely disturbing. It's a defenceless old lady slaughtered in the most horrific way possible. Why is that ever necessary? It suggests to me a killer who's a sadist or who has severe mental illness, or chilly perhaps both. The murder weapon was or has never been found, meaning it's unclear if it was an axe and the general consensus is that it was, if the weapon was taken to the scene by the killer or was found and used at the scene. This lack of clarification creates a hurdle in attempting to glean an insight into the mindset of Constance's killer. And it's another example of the frustrating stumbling blocks that you come across sometimes when you're researching unsolved cases. There's a psychological difference in the offender who uses what's nearest to hand as a weapon and the offender who comes prepared with a weapon. Either way, the killer showed some forensic awareness by taking the murder weapon with him. It's a chilling thought that a killer possibly stalked the streets of Cheltenham carrying an axe and having murder on his mind, either just having committed it or about to. Equally chilling is the possibility that he used a weapon found at the scene, then took it away with him as the ultimate trophy. Was Constance deliberately targeted? There's no evidence to suggest that anyone had a deep-seated grudge against her and she wasn't known to have any enemies. But regardless, I do believe that Constance was deliberately targeted, either by being known to a killer as a vulnerable person, or followed home by him. Even if she was followed home by someone who she was a stranger to, there's no way of ascertaining that she lived alone. I mean, she could have some 22 stone Gloucester forward living in the house with her. And also the chances of choosing a house at random that the sole occupant happens to be a defenceless elderly lady is highly unlikely. I think this is backed up because no one in the area reported any cold callers or strange visitors attempting to gain access to the house that evening. This helped cut down the multiple possible scenarios as to how the killer got into the house. One is that Constance disturbed a burglar already in the property, but there were problems with this. If she disturbed a burglar, signs of forced entry to the property would be apparent, wouldn't they, surely? 
I think it more likely that the killer followed Constance home and then conned his way into a house, perhaps by posing as an official from something such as the gas or water board or a salesman of some sort, perhaps even claiming to be ill or ringing the bell asking for direction somewhere. It would have been dark at this time in February, giving the killer extra cover, and this scenario would explain the lack of forced entry, and a short conversation on the doorstep could have easily established that Constance lived alone. Once the killer was inside, Constance was overpowered and likely threatened to reveal the location of any money that she may have kept in the house. The television may have been turned on or up to drown out any raised voice of the killer or screams, and the threat of bludgeoning may have been used to coerce her. Because she had no large sums of money, she of course would have pleaded this, but a constant denial was not believed by the killer, and threats became actions. It is possible that the sheer brutality and overkill was committed in the heat of the moment, or it may have just been pure bloodlust, and Constance was always going to die because the killer just wanted someone, anyone, to kill, and he saw Constance, and some dark force in his mind made her the target. As a frustrating case with a lack of clear motive or suspects, like the other unsolved cases that we feature on the show, all you can do is speculate based on the facts available, and it tends to raise more questions than provide answers. There's also no physical description of any suspect, which would of course be moot now anyway, due to the 33 years that have passed. Everything I've said about the killer's psyche or methods has to be pure speculation. I could, of course, be miles off target, but I'd never knowingly say something that I thought was deliberately wrong. Why would I do that? That's just daft, isn't it? With the passage of time, there's also the very real possibility that the killer of Constance Harris is now dead, and will never face justice for the crime. If he is still alive right now, He'd likely be middle-aged to elderly, perhaps in the 50 to 60 year old age bracket. He may be imprisoned for other offences, or in a hospital or residential care. He may live in the area still, or may have moved away or live overseas. I do think that this guy will have come to the attention of police or mental health services at some point, either before the murder or subsequently so his name will be somewhere in the system. It's impossible to believe that a person capable and so ready to use such horrific violence on a person could ever remain under the radar, nor ever offend again. The unidentified fingerprint found at the crime scene has never been matched to any that held on file, but of course, this may not even belong to the killer. It's not reported where it was found, and it could belong to someone entirely innocent and unconnected to the crime, who may not have even been aware enough to come forward. We just don't know, and that's what makes it so frustrating. Of course, as a case such as Constance's is only periodically reviewed, as and when new information is received, or funding allows when it isn't all going to ludicrous circuses such as the hunt for Madeleine McCann, which seems to have a never-ending money well attached to it, then there may still be a development in this case at a future date. Police are still looking for Constance's killer, and a case will never be closed, it may remain inactive but no unsolved murders are ever closed. The case has been reappealed a few times over the years, and it's still believed that somebody out there has knowledge of who this killer is, that the killer has told somebody what he's done. In the latest reappeal in 2010, this was echoed by Gloucestershire Police. Detective Chief Inspector Dave Selwood said at the time, It would be very unusual that in 25 years since it took place that that person has not told someone what he's done. Someone out there must know something. The perpetrator could well still live in Cheltenham. 
I would appeal to anyone with new information to come forward and contact us. It could help solve the town's most notorious murder. The people of Cheltenham are still very aware of this crime and would like to see it solved. And it deserves solving, doesn't it? Pretty awful, eh? Skip forward now almost five years and just 19 miles away from Cheltenham. Did the same killer commit another horrific, as yet unsolved murder in the same area? It's recently been Remembrance Sunday, a day when there's lots of people out paying respects at cenotaphs all over the country to remember those fallen in service. I was out there as always this year as a proud ex-serviceman, as I'm sure many of you were also. This year was especially pignant because it marked 100 years since the end of the First World War, and as a result, it's a memorable Remembrance Sunday. Firefighters called to a house blaze in the small Gloucestershire parish of Rodborough, near the town of Stroud, on Remembrance Sunday 1989. We'll never forget that one either. At 8.20am that morning, an anonymous telephone call reporting a house ablaze was made from the telephone kiosk on Walkley Hill in Rodborough. And when fire crews arrived, they found a three-storey holiday cottage across from the phone box. Part of a series of Rodborough's oldest buildings, known as the Boulevard, was ablaze. Smoke was billowing out of the front door, and entering the property, they began to extinguish the fire. The property was a holiday home owned by Carmel and David Gamble, a married couple who lived predominantly in a rented flat in Church Road in the Wimbledon area of London, and who used the cottage at weekends or for extended breaks in the summer. Once the fire was brought under control, which was relatively quickly, fire crews began making their way through the property looking for any signs of the occupants. Even through the extinguishment, they were aware of a powerful scent of paraffin, and making their way upstairs, they noticed that piles of clothing had been placed in different positions on the ground floor. This was a pattern that continued up the stairs and onto the landing, a stark contrast as in what could be seen in the rest of the property, which hadn't been too badly destroyed by the fire, everything else was orderly, exact and tidy. After finding nobody downstairs, firefighters made their way upstairs to check, and opening a bedroom door on the first floor, they were shocked to find the body of 43-year-old Carmel Gamble. Of her husband David, there was no sign, and there were no signs of life with Carmel. But she hadn't died from smoke inhalation, that was clear to see even to the casual observer. The blood-spattered walls and bedding showed that, as did her blood-stained clothing. Carmel had been brutally battered to death and had died of massive, vicious head injuries. Her body had also been mutilated with a sharp instrument. A murder investigation led by Detective Superintendent Roger Pierce was launched and it was established that Mrs Campbell had been staying at the Holiday Cottage by herself for several weeks while her husband David had remained in London. Carmel O'Donnell, as she'd been known by her maiden name, was 43 years old and had been married to David Gamble for several years by 1989. Although Carmel was born and raised in the Stroud area of Gloucestershire, about a mile from Rodborough, when she'd met and married David, the couple had moved to London, where David was a computer executive. They'd lived in London for several years, renting a flat in Wimbledon, before buying the holiday cottage in, at the Boulevard for use as a weekend home. They had no children, and little else is reported about Carmel. It's not known if she worked in any capacity, 
although from what little information was available for research, I'm not led to believe that she did. By all accounts, her life was somewhat tragic. Since 1974, Carmel had suffered with the disease anorexia nervosa, and in a constant state of half-starvation, it was a condition that she'd battled with for many years. She was receiving hospital treatment for the condition as an outpatient at St George's Hospital in Tutin, but it was a constant struggle and something Carmel wasn't doing too well with. At the time of her death, she weighed just under five stones. A consultant interviewed for the BBC's Crime Watch programme, first time this series we've mentioned Crime Watch, eh? And BBC, yes, you are still twats for messing about with it and ultimately cancelling it. Don't want you to think that you're getting away with it. The consultant described how due to her condition, Carmel would have been in a constant state of alertness, overactive and restless, and would have had trouble relaxing and sleeping. This affected her mood greatly, and she would have been irritable constantly. Carmel was somewhat of a loner, becoming a familiar figure in the Wimbledon area shops, always seen dressed in a long grey woollen coat and wooden clogs, whatever the weather, that earned her recognition as the Clog Lady. Now perhaps this was not meant unkindly, just more of a pointed reference to a familiar figure. I'm sure that there are familiar characters that spring to your mind from the area that you live, that you may be familiar with purely because of their idiosyncrasies or how they look or dress. It's just human nature that, isn't it? Carmel would often shop in boutiques around the Wimbledon area, where she became familiar and remembered especially because she used to do the majority of shopping towards closing time, when the shops were quieter and had less people in. The reason for this was suggested that she was conscious of her appearance, and perhaps felt too anxious to go out earlier in busier crowds of people. Her anxiety, and the physical and mental effects that the anorexia had on Carmel, made it difficult for her to get close to people, and as a result, she would often spend time by herself back at the holiday cottage in Rodborough, an area where she felt comfortable and that she knew very well. The cottage had no telephone installed in it at the time, but it is located across from a telephone box that's still in place to this day, and Carmel and David had an arrangement when she, whenever she was at the cottage that he would call the telephone box at pre-arranged times so the couple could speak. It was still a few years before the onset of mobile phones this was. From the beginning of October 1989, Carmel had taken herself off to the boulevard to spend a few weeks here without David, a solitary existence that if may not have been ideally what she wanted, it was at least something that she was comfortable with, and she could exercise her own particular routines in comfort. The cottage is only about a mile south of Stroud Town Centre, and Carmel had also become a familiar figure here, often amongst the boutiques and craft shops, always by herself, always wearing a long grey woollen coat and her clogs. Until Thursday the 9th of November, when she was seen in Rumbelow's electrical store in Stroud Town Centre with a man at about 5.30pm. The witness in the shop at the time was clear that this was Carmel. She remembered the slim, almost frail figure, the distinct grey coat and clogs, and the man with her was described as being a white male, aged about 40 to 45 years old, slim built, long swept back dark hair and wearing a white or grey herringbone type jacket, jeans and a grey jumper. He had entered the shop with Carmel and they were seen to speak for some moments. Although the witness could not hear the conversation, the body language appeared as though the two were arguing. When they were approached by the assistant offering customer service, 
the man headed off and left the shop. Carmel had also rebuked the assistant somewhat abruptly and had left the shop almost immediately afterwards. The next time that she was seen because she kept very much to herself and didn't bother with neighbours too much was on Saturday the 11th of November, again in Stroud Town Centre. At 4.30pm that afternoon, she was in a haberdashery. That's one of my favourite words whatsoever that is. Haberdashery. Sounds great, doesn't it? Called so-and-so. Again, what else are you going to call a haberdashery? She was there buying some buttons. Then about an hour later, she was shopping in Boots Chemist in the town centre. Again remembered for a unique style of dress and for the fact that the manager had to wait for Carmel to finish shopping so that she could close up and cash up for the evening. That store manager is the last person known to have seen Carmel Gamble alive, except for a killer. It's not known how Carmel got back to the cottage that Saturday evening. She may have hailed a taxi, but as no taxi firms operating from Stroud remember dropping off a woman of her description in Rodborough that evening, Carmel most likely walked the short distance home from town. At 8am the next morning, Someone wearing a long grey woollen coat was seen stood in the telephone kiosk immediately opposite Carmel's cottage by a passerby. The phone box door was ajar, although a clear description of the person inside couldn't be established. It was just 20 minutes later that the anonymous call reported the fire, at about the same time that a neighbour noticed smoke billowing out of the property. Then of course the fire brigade arrived, leading to the discovery of Carmel's horrific murder. The only thing found to be missing was Carmel's distinctive long grey woollen coat. A search of the property and of her flat in London in case it had been left there failed to find it. The person stood in the telephone box on Walkley Hill that morning had a long grey woollen coat on. Had a killer taken it away with him and was it the same person stood in the phone box? The police investigation, although thorough, failed to find any possible motive for Carmel's death. She was found to have been battered to death and had received several blows to the head from a heavy rounded blunt instrument thought likely to be a hammer or the blunt edge of an axe, which had caused massive damage to the skull. She'd also been stabbed and severely mutilated, although the extent to which and with what has never been reported. It was described by Detective Superintendent Pierce as a particularly violent attack on a defenceless woman in her own home. There were no reports of any sexual assault, no signs of any ransacking of the property, no screams or sounds of a struggle were heard, no one was seen fleeing the scene, and no fingerprints or forensic evidence from the killer was found at the scene, nor were there any obvious suspects. Her husband David was quickly cleared of any suspicion, and Carmel didn't seem to have many friends, let alone any enemies. Nor is it reported as to any existing family that she had in the area. Indeed, she seemed by all accounts to have kept herself to herself and be a very solitary figure, often not bothering with people for long periods on end. So what singled her out to be the victim of such a harrowing, brutal murder? The murder was reconstructed for BBC's Crime Watch in March 1990, some four months after the crime. Back in an era when Crime Watch was still on monthly, of course, and doing good, unlike now. And several points of appeal were made. An artist's impression of the man seen with Carmel in Rumbelows on the Thursday before she died was shown, as well as appeals for a young man who was seen with his head in his hands 
sat on a bench outside the Prince Albert pub, which is just yards up from Carmel's cottage, at about 2.30am that Sunday morning. What was of particular interest about this man was that on the ground next to where he was sat was a white plastic bag that was upright, as though it had a container in it. Did that container have paraffin in? There was also an appeal for the person seen in the telephone box 20 minutes before the fire was discovered to come forward, but despite receiving a substantial number of calls to the studio, the identities of any of these people were never established. With no other leads, and despite a local businessman offering a £1,000 reward, Carmel's case soon became a cold one and was effectively shelved. There was a reappeal seven years after the murder in 1996 and this led to a woman coming forward who thought that she could help identify the man seen with Carmel a few days before her death. A member of the inquiry team, Chief Inspector Mike Humphreys, said at the time, I spoke to a woman who said that she never came forward initially but after nearly seven years couldn't sleep because of it. She gave evidence about Mrs Campbell being seen with that man. It was very useful confirming some knowledge we had before but also relating different times and dates. I'm convinced there is somebody out there who knows this person. I also believe there are people who knew Carmel Gamble when they worked in Stroud Town Centre and haven't come forward. It was one of the most horrific and brutal murders in the county. There's a small group of officers who are available still to deal with new information. If anybody wants to ring me or even arrange a meeting, they can do so. Yet Carmel's murder remains unsolved, and as of 2016, it wasn't being investigated. It has the active with regular reviews tag attached to it. No one has ever been arrested, charged, or brought to justice over it to this day. So you have Carmel Gamble, a private solitary woman by all accounts, horrifically murdered in such an overkill of violence, and then the scene set on fire. This is a crime that raises more questions than it answers them, and the scant information available hints at only possible avenues of exploration. I find that whenever I research these unsolved cases with very little to go on, I tend to make notes in the form of questions against the available facts, and I've done so here in this case. Carmel's killer is likely to have been a repeat offender. The level of violence here is built up to it's not a first offence, is it, like Constance? and he's likely to have committed crimes again if he's still alive, and of course, if he's not imprisoned or in a hospital. Statistically likely to be a male, the level of violence used in the murder supports this theory, and there's also a possibility that this killer was mentally ill. It's an easy jump whenever something horrific like this happens to suggest that someone capable of such violence must obviously have a few screws loose, so there also exists the possibility that this person may have been known to local mental health authorities. He may not necessarily have been from the immediate area, indeed, I think this unlikely because an apparent suspect would have been more than likely identified in the routine house-to-house inquiries following the murder. For example, someone who was remembered coming home that evening in an agitated state, perhaps stinking of paraffin. I do think it likely, though, that this was someone, if not from the area, that was very familiar with it. Fenders offend where they know, don't they? As we is said many times before on the show. Carmel's husband David would have been a primary person of interest in the investigation, and so his movements over the time of the murder and any possible motive that he may have had for wanting his wife dead 
would have been scrutinised, yet he was all but ruled out. I was left with the impression that their marriage wasn't a close and loving one. There were no children, for example. Although, of course, this could have been for medical reasons, perhaps, rather than choice. There's also the fact that for long periods, Carmel and David lived a great distance apart. Was the marriage in trouble, or was it a marriage in just name alone? Which leads me on to the second point that I noted, concerning the man seen with Carmel. Was this a lover of hers? It's of course possible that Carmel and her husband David were leading separate lives, and had she made an acquaintance in Stroud on one of her periods of staying down there, perhaps that was even part of the reason that she spent increasing periods of time down there. Was this the guy that she was seen with? Perhaps it was someone from her past. Yet police would of course investigate this angle, and this was never reported as being accurate. If she did have a lover, of course, he may just have been good at being discreet, and neglected to come forward because he was already involved in another relationship at the time, and this would have compromised him. It's undoubtedly an angry crime, the level of violence and the destruction of the property shows this, yet but this would seem extreme for a lover's quarrel though, wouldn't it? There's also nothing reported about any signs of sexual activity, either voluntary or enforced, and no argument or shouting was reported as being heard, so for me, the lover's tiff angle doesn't quite fit. I mean, that would be some tiff, wouldn't it, really? They'd be shouting, screaming, that would be a hell of a row. So if not a lover, it is still possible that Carmel knew a killer. Was this someone that this intense, private loner felt comfortable enough with to let into the house, who then killed her in a fit of obvious rage. The multiple methods of inflicting wounds, plus the extent of Carmel's injuries, suggests that this was a very angry killer indeed. Or killers, of course. Two different methods of inflicting injuries could suggest two people. But angry what for? And everyone within the local area who Carmel knew, and who knew her, would have been spoken to during the investigation, yet no suspect came to light. It makes no sense whatsoever. So a stranger then, did Carmel perhaps disturb a burglar? The property may have been known to the killer as a holiday home, and perhaps they thought it might have been empty at the time, with no sign of any car apparent at the property. There are fields either side of Walkley Hill that may have appealed to a burglar for egress and to approach unseen for access. So did someone break into the property, and then killed Carmel when confronted by her? I don't think this was the case for a few reasons. There was no sign of any reported forced entry to the property, and nothing was reported as being stolen except for Carmel's coat, which was only likely to have been taken to conceal any blood-stained clothing of the killer and the murder weapons which were never found. Carmel would also have been no match for any burglar, who would have been able to flee the scene if discovered by easily overpowering her. I mean, she weighed less than five stone, for goodness sake, without any need for such overkill of violence. And why would a burglar then remain in the property to start a fire? It is unable to ascertain the exact time of Carmel's murder, but it's likely to have been in the early hours of the Sunday. Fire started with paraffin will have become a fierce blaze relatively quickly, so the killer is likely to have left at about 20 minutes before the smoke was noticed. Did he possibly then hang around and watch from the telephone box across the road to make sure that the fire had taken hold? Likely so, the person was wearing a long grey woollen coat, most probably the one taken from Carmel, 
And why set the fire? Was it a further act of defilement, or was it to erase any physical evidence that he'd left behind? I also think that her killer spent a substantial period of time at the scene. Perhaps Carmel was killed hours before, and at first light, the killer then started the fire and exited the property. Maybe there were several traces of him, perhaps fingerprints or DNA in the property, and it was easier to start a fire to destroy the lot, rather than remove all traces by hand and risk missing something. See what I mean? So much of this is questions and theories, speculation. There is one other chilling thought that crossed my mind. Maybe that Saturday evening, there was a homicidal maniac, a proper nutcase wandering round with murder on his mind. He saw and followed Carmel home, followed her into the house and attacked her. He may have then spent all night in the property, periodically inflicting mutilation on her body, acting out some chilling fantasy of his, and then set the property on fire, because it was the ultimate final last act. It wasn't for rape or robbery purposes, it was purely because he wanted someone to kill and something to destroy. And he chose Carmel and a cottage. Constance and Carmel, two women who wouldn't have been able to put up much of a fight against the killer, killed horrifically in an orgy of violence for no apparent reason. Unsolved crimes to this day, just 19 miles apart. Police have never officially linked either crime, and I'm not doing the same here, I must stress that. They could of course be totally unconnected. But the possibility that they are does bear thinking about, doesn't it? Think of the victimology, the level of violence and the proximity of the cases. Other similar crimes that have featured in past unsolved episodes of the show sprung to my mind while I was researching these two cases, specifically that of Danuta Kazmarska in Birmingham in 1986 and Violet Milsom in Bristol in 1985. There was massive evidence of overkill in both of those murders as well, and in Danuta's case, the use of an axe and fire. West Midlands Unsolved and Avon and Somerset Unsolved those episodes are, for those interested. See what you think, have a listen to them. So what if I throw a suspect at you? Two years after Carmel's death, Gloucestershire had yet another horror inflicted upon it. And this was, bearing in mind, this is two years before the West was discovered. But unlike the cases of Constance and Carmel, this crime was solved. I add it here in the episode, not just because it took place in the Gloucestershire town 10 miles away from Stroud, but also because police tentatively linked this killer to Carmel's case at the time, and also because of something he said after he was arrested. Are you any good at maths? Can you do sums in your head faster than the Daily Mail blames everything on immigrants? Or are you one of these people who needs to take off your shoes and socks just to have the extra digits to be able to count. Christopher Gore was good at maths. It was one of the things that made him stand out. He was also one of these pupils in school who, to look at him, you wouldn't have thought that he would amount to very much. Scruffily dressed, hair constantly lanky and greasy, and a fellow pupil remembered him as constantly coming to school with the dregs of sleep still covering his eyes, generally looking as though he'd just slept in a river. He was quiet and a loner by nature, described as a nervy kid, one who attended St Ambrose Catholic School in Altrincham in the mid-1970s was a prime target for bullying. 
Bullies are those who are bullied and generally very angry people. And Christopher was remembered there as being a kid with a temper, one who would snap if pushed too far, and at least on one occasion stormed out of school and walked home after teachers there had had a bit of a go at him. From all accounts, the school did sound a hellish place to go at the time. It was a boys-only Catholic school, and the brothers there were strict disciplinarians. Plus, in 2014, one of the former tutors there at the time, Alan Morris, was prosecuted and received a nine-year prison sentence for 41 counts of historical sexual abuse stemming from the 1970s to the early 1990s. This was by all accounts, to date, the biggest historical sexual abuse case ever investigated by Greater Manchester Police, and the full inside story can be found in a fascinating book called Tell the Truth and Shame the Devil, written by a former pupil of there in the 1970s called David Nolan. Not the kind of place that you'd want to go really, even though by all accounts it's now been rebranded as an academy. Places that have seen horror and abuse such as this are forever tainted, I think. I happen to live and work quite close to another place that's quite widely known that was involved in a historical sexual abuse scandal, the former Bryn Estyn Children's Home in Wrexham. And even though the scandal is many years past now, and the building's no longer a children's home, it's still a creepy, evil-looking kind of place. Regardless of how many years pass, I think that if evil happens at a certain specific place, then it's forever tainted with it by people who remember. I mean, if Cromwell Street was still standing, what would you think if you passed that each day? Or the house High Hopes in Amityville? What do people think when they see that straight away? What springs to mind? Basically, this school wasn't any Hogwarts. Christopher Gore, for as much as he was remembered as being scruffy and angry, was a clever and very gifted student, particularly in mathematics. In fact, he was considered as having a near-genius level, making easy work of the most complex problems. And when he was to leave St Ambrose in the early 1980s, when his family moved to Gloucestershire for his father's work, he went on to study advanced mathematics at Bath University when he left school. His family, his father John, mother Ruth, and older sister Catherine, were all academically gifted themselves, and they pushed Christopher to do well in his studies, his father especially setting the bar by holding a doctorate in nuclear physics and a position as a senior researcher at the Berkeley Nuclear Laboratory in Gloucestershire. Christopher excelled in this and was to graduate Bath University with a first-class honours degree in advanced mathematics. His tutors there described him as exceptionally brilliant, and he was widely expected to attain, perhaps even surpass, his father's level of academic brilliance when he began a PhD. He completed the first year, but it was following this first year that things began to take a downward turn for Christopher and caused him to drop out. He was never the most outgoing and social person, having anger issues, few friends and generally being regarded as something of a loner. But it was at this point in his life that his behaviour began to become increasingly strange. He got rid of his conservative haircut, grew his hair long and grew a beard. He took to constantly playing with wind-up toys and obsessively reading, and at one point he was charged with criminal damage after smashing up one of the computer rooms at the university in a violent outburst. It was shortly after this that he abandoned his studies completely and began a nomadic lifestyle, sometimes leaving the Gore family home in the Gloucestershire town of Tetbury for lengthy periods of time, living at friends' homes and sometimes even sleeping rough. 
The young man who was once widely expected to re-split the atom now decided on a new career for himself, that of a street entertainer. He'd constantly be found outside Bath Abbey and places such as that from then on, entertaining crowds of shoppers and tourists by juggling coloured balls, knives and flaming torches and earning a pittance. Now his family were understandably disappointed by him turning his back on his studies and seeing him waste his life, and they were more than a little worried. In fact, they were seriously concerned. Ever since school, the anger issue had never gone away, and they'd always tried their best to help and support Christopher, giving their only son all the love and care that he could wish for. Not wanting to see him waste such a promising future, they encouraged him to seek psychiatric treatment, and he must have agreed with them, because he began receiving treatment, although the extent of this, and any hospitalisation or medication he may have received, is not reported. What was reported was that Christopher was diagnosed as having a schizoid personality, which had likely started as a youth with a constant anger, and had manifested itself in the serious behavioural problems that had developed during his postgraduate work. And despite treatment, Christopher's psychiatric problems were constant over several years, right through the mid-1980s to the early 1990s. He continued going missing for lengthy periods of time, and attempted suicide twice over this period. But alongside the existing issues that he had, he now also began to fantasise about harming and killing people. It's now Sunday the 9th of September 1991. Christopher was at the time in one of the periods when he was living at the family home in Tetbury. Tetbury is a pleasant looking place that when I looked up notable residents of it on good old Wikipedia, and every true crime researcher uses Wikipedia, I just point that out, I don't care whether they say they do or not, if they say they don't they're lying. I found that residents include Jet Black, founder member of the Stranglers, Jake Mayer, the youngest Briton to ever complete the Seven Summits Climbing Challenge, and of course, Prince Charles and Camilla live nearby at Highgrove, which is just southwest of Tetbury. That Sunday morning, Christopher woke early, about 6am, just as it was getting light. He got dressed silently and made his way downstairs, careful not to wake his mother and father. It was just the three of them living there at the time. His sister Catherine had some time before moved out to live in a property of her own nearby. Once he was downstairs in the kitchen, Christopher unlocked and opened the utility door from the kitchen that led into the garage. He went inside and then spent some time looking around at the items that were stored in there. When he found what he was seeking, he grasped it in his hands. It was a three foot long sharpened felling axe. He got used to the weight and feel of the axe in his hands, practising getting decent grip with it, and even having a few practice swings, before heading back into the kitchen and closing the utility door. Pausing here, he selected a sharp kitchen knife from the block, and then silently headed back upstairs, passing the door of his bedroom, then his sister's old bedroom, before pausing outside the bedroom door, where his 57-year-old father and 55-year-old mother still slept. He pushed open the door quietly and paused for a second. Then he raised the axe in his hands. It's likely that his father never knew what hit him and was killed almost instantly. Such was the ferocity that Christopher attacked him with. He rained blow after blow upon his father's head 
and literally smashed his head to pieces. His mother was, of course, awoken by the commotion and sprang up, surely unable to comprehend what was happening. I mean, that would be like some nightmare, wouldn't it? Imagine waking up to that. She screamed, trying to stop Christopher, but was silenced with a blow to the head from the axe. When he was finished attacking his father, who was, of course, by now clearly dead, he turned his attentions towards his mother Ruth. She may not, of course, have been killed instantly from the initial blow, but she would have been gravely wounded. But then Christopher just vented his rage upon her, much in the same way he'd just killed his father. Blow after blow rained down, and then he began with a kitchen knife. He stabbed both his mother and father's corpses repeatedly, only stopping when he'd left the bed an entire room looking like an abattoir. He then went downstairs and watched the video as though nothing had happened. Can you believe how chilling is that? And then after some time, the dark forces in his mind began to swirl again. He went back upstairs and into his parents' bedroom, where he went and took £40 in cash from his father's wallet. Going back downstairs, he collected the morning newspaper from outside the front door, and then drew the curtains back to create an appearance of normality. No neighbour's passing would remark or become suspicious about the curtains still being drawn shut at an unusual time. He stripped off and replaced his heavily bloodstained clothing with clean ones, dropping the clothes that he'd worn to kill his parents on the living room floor. He then spent a considerable amount of time wiping down any surfaces in the bedroom that he may have touched. He wiped the axe handle and the kitchen knife as well as surfaces in the kitchen and living room clean and then replaced the axe and the knife in the block. He then put a bag together containing a bizarre assortment of items, including a favoured wind-up toy of his, and a paperback book, a true crime one entitled Soul Survivor by Elliot Layton. His next act was to get a timing device, the kind that you use to cause lights to come on when you're out of your home to give the appearance that you're actually in, and connected this to an electric fire in the front room. He then placed pieces of the morning newspaper on and alongside the fire, dropped his blood-stained clothing next to it, and then went back to the garage, where he returned with a container filled with paraffin. This he poured around the front room. When it was emptied, he then set the electric timer to come on in two hours' time, before leaving the house through the front door, which he locked behind him. Christopher then calmly made his way to the nearest train station in Kemble, and from here he caught a train to Bath, and went to visit friends that he had there. Witnesses on the train later remarked upon the strange animated young man who was playing fixatedly with a wind-up toy, never imagining for a second the carnage that he'd caused only a few hours beforehand. Christopher's friends in Bath were the same, they were used to him just arriving unannounced, and were to later claim that his behaviour was normal in all the time that he was with them, as though nothing had happened whatsoever. Meanwhile, mid-morning on that Sunday, Catherine Gore decided to call on her parents, and was alarmed to discover the cottage on Chavenage Lane ablaze when she called around. It was shortly after the timer had activated, causing the electric fire to come on, which ignited the paper and the paraffin, and as a result, the fire service were contacted and attended the scene relatively quickly. Once the fire was put under control, firefighters made the grim discovery of the horrific scene of slaughter upstairs and the mutilated bodies of John and Ruth Gore. Gloucestershire detectives immediately began a murder inquiry and began a search for Christopher Gore, 
of whom there was no sign. He was from the start the person police wanted to trace imperatively, and an appeal was made on local news following news of the murder's break-in for him to come forward or for anybody who had seen him to contact police. Within 24 hours of the killings, Christopher Gore walked into a Bath police station after telling his shocked friends what he'd done. He said to the desk sergeant, I believe you want me for two murders and a fire. During the countless police interviews that followed, Christopher was to deny to police having killed his parents, even though he admitted what he'd done to his shocked friends. Bloodstained fingerprints of his were found on remnants of the Sunday newspaper that had escaped being destroyed in the fire downstairs. Four days after the murders, he was charged with the killings and was remanded in custody to Broadmoor Secure Hospital in Berkshire. On Tuesday the, October the 20th 1992, Christopher Gore stood trial for the murder of his mother and father at Bristol Crown Court, where the Crown accepted his plea of guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. 27-year-old Gore admitted what he'd done, and Mr Neil Butterfield QC, prosecuting, told the court, He was seriously disturbed at the time, he was then and remains now, a highly dangerous young man suffering from a schizoid personality. He went on to tell the court how Gore had developed an irrational and all-consuming hatred for his parents because he claimed that they denied him affection as a child and had pushed him far too hard academically. His sister Catherine, who, let's not forget in all this, had just lost her mum and dad and was likely to lose her brother forever now as well, strongly denied these claims in court. She told how the Gore children had both had a conventional childhood with the love and support of their parents, and that while she was only too aware of her brother's mental issues over the preceding years, there was absolutely no explanation, provocation or substance in any of his claims. The court then listened as Mr Butterfield outlined the events of September the 9th 1991, how Gore had taken the axe and kitchen knife and attacked his parents with terrifying ferocity as they lay in bed he had then attempted to cover his tracks by changing his bloodstained clothing and setting the delayed timing device to firebomb the cottage before leaving to stay with friends in bath shortly afterwards catherine had arrived to visit her parents and had discovered the fire and subsequent murders trauma which you undoubtedly never do get over do you you'd never forget something like that would you Presiding Judge Mr Justice Old ordered that Gore be detained indefinitely at Broadmoor Secure Hospital, saying that there was no doubt that the opinion of psychiatrists was right, and that he was suffering from a severe mental disorder, with prolonged hospital treatment likely to alleviate or prevent the deterioration of the said psychopathological disorder. He was to add that he believed there would be a need for restraint for a long time ahead. No shit really, eh? Christopher Gore was then sent to Broadmoor without limit of time and he remains in a secure hospital to this day. A senior detective involved in the case said after Gore was sentenced, he was undoubtedly a loner with few friends. He told some of them that he wanted to kill his parents but no one took him seriously. I do not think we will ever know why he bore a grudge against them. They did everything they could to help him and to support him, support that he did not apparently repay. So an unfamiliar case this, yes. Much was made of two things after Gore's arrest. 
The first that came up when I was researching this case is that it's claimed Gore had a fixation with the full moon as though it caused him to act in such a way because the night before he killed his parents it had been the night of the full moon. Now perhaps it did, who knows, it's quite widely known, albeit a bit of an old wives tale, that the phases of the moon have long been considered to have an effect on a person's mental state, hence the origin of the term lunatic. But it's the second claim that quite a lot was made of that's much more of a talking point I think, and the reason I included this case alongside two other unsolved cases from the area. Whilst in custody awaiting trial for the murders of his parents, Gore is alleged to have said to police, I've already committed two major crimes in the area, and you'll not catch me for either of them. In the area. Gore would not expand on this any further. Was this the ramblings of someone with severe mental illness, or was he speaking the truth? It led detectives to look at unsolved murders in the surrounding areas with Gore in mind as a suspect, and they focused upon two cases in particular. The first was a notorious 1984 murder from the Bath area, the murder of Melanie Road, that remained unsolved for more than 30 years, and one that you never know may end up featuring on a future episode of the show. Strongest possible hint I can give there. Whilst the second was the sad case of the clog lady Carmel Gamble, which we just featured before. Now because Melanie's case is now solved, and Gore was not responsible for a murder I can tell you, I thought immediately of Constance's case as the second one alongside Carmel's, because I do not believe that these were idle boasts of his at all. Such a brutal murderer, with a nomadic lifestyle and mental illness, in close proximity to two horrific unsolved killings, combining aspects from both unsolved murders in the one that he's definitely known to have committed, axes, fires and extreme violence, all in a relatively small geographic area. Is it a stretch to think that the two major crimes in the area he boasted of were the murders of Constance Harris and Carmel Gamble? Yet they remain officially unsolved. Gore has never admitted to either. As with the other unsolved cases that I featured on the show, I've offered my own thoughts and observations here. I don't express them to be right, I'm not Sherlock Holmes, and I only have two balls, and neither of those are crystal. But nor would I come out with anything that I knew to be complete horseshit either, would I? Why would I do that? I found both unsolved cases to be extremely disturbing and sad. I had covered Constance's case for the WordPress blog of the show about two years ago now, and I thought Carmel and Constance are names that deserve to be remembered. I hope that this episode helps to do that somewhat into the public conscious. What do you guys think? Are these three unconnected crimes, or is Constance and Carmel's killer the same person? And could Gore be responsible? You know where to share your thoughts? The thread is up now in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook. Or you can contact through the usual social media channels. Either would be great, because I'd be most interested to hear your thoughts about the cases featured in this episode. By all means, get in touch too if you want to suggest a case that you think would be a good fit for the show. Or should you wish to also, you can get yourself some extra episodes of the show as a Patreon supporter by either using the Patreon link in the show notes or heading over to Patreon and looking for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. That's all from me for another week. 
I hope to catch you guys all next True Crime Thursday when I'm back with another episode. Until then, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Cheers for joining me all, and goodbye for now.